0: THE LAST LORDS OF Gardonal. PART ONE One of the most picturesque objects of the valley of the Engadin is the ruined castle of Gardonal, near the village of Madeline. In the feudal times it was the seat of a family of barons, who possessed as their patrimony the whole of the valley, with which the castle had descended from father to son for many generations. The last two of the race were brothers, handsome, well-made, fine-looking young men, but in nature they more resembled fiends than human beings. So cruel, rapacious, and tyrannical were they. During the earlier part of his life, their father had been careful of his patrimony. He had also been unusually just to the serfs on his estates, and in consequence they had attained to such a condition of comfort and prosperity as was rarely met with among those in the power of the feudal lords of the country, most of whom were arbitrary and exacting in the extreme. For several years in the latter part of his life he had been subject to a severe illness, which had confined him to the castle, and the management of his possessions and the government of his serfs had thus fallen into the hands of his sons. Although the old baron had placed so much power in their hands, still he was far from resigning his own authority. He exacted a strict account from them of the manner in which they performed the different duties he had entrusted to them, and having a strong suspicion of their character and the probability of their endeavouring to conceal their misdoings, he caused agents to watch them secretly and to report to him as to the correctness of the statements they gave. These agents, possibly knowing that the old man had but a short time to live, invariably gave a most favourable description of the conduct of the two young nobles which it must be admitted was not, during their father's lifetime, particularly reprehensible on the whole. Still, they frequently showed as much of the cloven foot as to prove to the tenants what they had to expect at no distant day. At the old baron's death, Conrad the elder inherited as his portion the castle of Gardonal and the whole valley of Engaden, while to Herman the younger was assigned some immense estates belonging to his father in the Bresciano district for even in those early days there was considerable intercourse between the inhabitants of that northern portion of Italy and those of the valley of the Ingaden. The old baron had also willed that, should either of his sons die without children, his estates should go to the survivor. Conrad, accordingly, now took possession of the castle and its territory, and Hermann of the estates on the southern side of the Alps, which, although much smaller than those left to his elder brother, were still of great value. Notwithstanding the disparity and the worth of the legacies bequeathed to the two brothers, a perfectly good feeling existed between them, which promised to continue, their tastes being the same, while the mountains which divided them tended to the continuance of peace. Conrad had hardly been one single week feudal lord of the Engadin before the inhabitants found to their sorrow how great was the difference between him and the old baron. Instead of the score of armed retainers his father had kept, Conrad increased the number to three hundred men, none of whom were natives of the valley. They had been chosen with great care from a body of Bohemian, German, and Italian outlaws, who at that time infested the borders of the Grisons, or had found refuge in the fastnesses of the mountains. Men capable of any atrocity, and to whom pity was unknown, from these miscreants the baron especially chose for his bodyguard those who were ignorant of the language spoken by the peasantry of the Ingaden, as they would be less likely to be influenced by any supplications or excuses which might be made to them when in the performance of their duty. Although the keeping of so numerous a body of armed retainers might naturally be considered to have entailed great expense, such a conclusion would be most erroneous, at least as far as regarded the present baron who was as avaricious as he was despotic, he contrived to support his soldiers by imposing a most onerous tax on his tenants, irrespective of his ordinary feudal imposts, and woe to the unfortunate villagers who, from inability or from a sense of the injustice inflicted on them, did not contribute to the uttermost farthing the amount levied on them. In such a case, a party of soldiers was immediately sent off to the defaulting village to collect the tax with permission to live at the free quarters till the money was paid, and they knew their duty too well to return home till they had succeeded in their errand. In doing this, they were frequently merciless in the extreme, exacting the money by torture or any other means they pleased, and when they had been successful in obtaining the baron's dues by way of further punishment, they generally robbed the poor peasantry of everything they had which was worth the trouble of carrying away, and not unfrequently from a spirit of sheer mischief. They spoiled all that remained. Many were the complaints which reached the ears of the baron of the cruel behavior of his retainers. But in no case did they receive any redress, the baron making it a portion of his policy that no crimes committed by those under his command should be invested, so long as those crimes took place when employed in collecting taxes which he had imposed and which had remained unpaid. But the depredations and cruelties of the Baron Conrad were not confined solely to the valley of Engaden. Frequently, in the summertime, when the snows had melted on the mountains, so as to make the road practicable for his soldiers and their plunder, he would make a raid on the Italian side of the Alps. There they would rob and commit every sort of atrocity with impunity, and when they had collected sufficient booty they returned with it to the castle. Loud, indeed, were the complaints which reached the authorities of Milan. With routine tardiness, the government never took any energetic steps to punish the offenders until the winter had set in. And to cross the mountains in that season would have been almost an impossibility, at all events, for an army. When the spring returned, more prudential reasons prevailed, and the matter, gradually diminishing in interest, was at last allowed to die out without any active measures being taken. Again, the districts in which the atrocities had been committed were hardly looked upon by the Milanese government as being Italian. The people themselves were beginning to be infected by a heresy which approached closely to the Protestantism of the present day. Nor was their language that of Italy, but a patois of their own. Thus the government began to consider it unadvisable to attempt to punish the baron, richly as he deserved it on behalf of those who, after all, were little worthy of the protection they demanded. The only real step they took to chastise him was to get him excommunicated by the Pope, which, as the Baron and his followers professed no religion at all, was treated by them with ridicule. It happened that in one of his marauding expeditions in the Valteline, the Baron, when near Bormio, saw a young girl of extraordinary beauty. He was only attended at the time by two followers, else it is more probable that he would have made her a prisoner and carried her off to Cardonal. As it was, he would probably have made the attempt had she not been surrounded by a number of peasants who were working in some fields belonging to her father. The baron was also aware that the militia of the town, who had been expecting his visit, were under arms, and on an alarm being given could be on the spot in a few minutes. Now, as the baron combined with his despotism a considerable amount of cunning, he merely attempted to enter into conversation with the girl. Finding his advances coldly received, he contented himself with inquiring of one of the peasants the girl's name and place of abode. He received for reply that her name was Teresa Biffy, and that she was the daughter of a substantial farmer, who with his wife and four children, of whom Teresa was the eldest, lived in a house at the extremity of the land he occupied. As soon as the baron had received this information, he left the spot and proceeded to the farmer's house, which he inspected externally with great care. He found it was of considerable size, strongly built of stone with iron bars to the lower windows and a strong well-made oaken door which could be securely fastened from the inside. After having made the round of the house, which he did alone, he returned to his two men, whom in order to avoid suspicion he had placed at a short distance from the building in a spot where they could not easily be seen. Ludovico, he said to one of them, who was his lieutenant and invariably accompanied him in all his expeditions, Mark well that house, for some day, or more probably night, you may have to pay it a visit. Ludovico merely said in reply that he would always be ready and willing to perform any order his master might honour him with and the baron with his men then left the spot. The hold the beauty of Teresa Biffy had taken upon the imagination of the baron actually looked like enchantment. His love for her, instead of diminishing by time, seemed to increase daily. At last he had resolved on making her his wife, and about a month after he had seen her, he commissioned his lieutenant Ludovico to carry to Biffy an offer of marriage with his daughter not dreaming at the moment of the possibility of a refusal. Ludovico immediately started on his mission, and in due time arrived at the farmer's house and delivered the baron's message. To Ludovico's intense surprise, however, he received from Biffy a positive refusal. Not daring to take back so uncourteous a reply to his master, Ludovico went on to describe the great advantage which would accrue to the farmer and his family if the baron's proposal were accepted. Not only, he said, would Teresa be a lady of the highest rank and in possession of enormous wealth, both in gold and jewels, but that the other members of her family would also be ennobled, and each of them, as they grew up, would receive appointments under the baron, besides having large estates allotted to them in the Ingaden Valley. The farmer listened with patience to Ludovico, and when he had concluded, he replied, Tell your master I have received his message, and that I am ready to admit that great personal advantages might accrue to me and my family by accepting his offer. Say that, although I am neither noble nor rich, that yet at the same time I am not poor. But were I as poor as the blind mendicant whom you passed on the road in coming hither, I would spurn such an offer from so infamous a wretch as the baron. You say truly that he is well known for his power and his wealth, but the latter has been obtained by robbing both rich and poor, who had not the means to resist him, and his power has been so greatly strengthened by engaging in his service a numerous band of robbers and cutthroats who are ready and willing to murder anyone at his bidding. You have my answer, and the sooner you quit this neighborhood the better for I can assure you that anyone known to be in service of the Baron Conrad is likely to meet with a most unfavorable reception from those who live around us. Then you positively refuse his offer? said Ludovico. Positively, and without the slightest reservation, was the farmer's reply. And you wish me to give him the message in the terms you have made use of? Without omitting a word, was the father's reply. At the same time, you may add to it as many of the same description as you please. Take care, said Ludovico. There is time for you yet to reconsider your decision. If you insist on my taking your message to the Baron, I must, of course, do so. But in that case, make your peace with heaven as soon as you can, for the Baron is not a man to let such an insult pass. Follow my advice and accept his offer ere it is too late. ''I have no other answer to give you,'' said Biffy. ''I am sorry for it,'' said Ludovico, heaving a deep sigh. ''I have now no alternative,'' and mounting his horse he rode away. Now it must not be imagined that the advice Ludovico gave the farmer and the urgent requests and arguments he offered were altogether the genuine effusions of his heart. On the contrary, Ludovico had easily perceived, on hearing the farmer's first refusal, that there was no chance of the proposal being accepted. He had therefore occupied his time during the remaining portion of the interview in carefully examining the premises and mentally taking note of the manner in which they could be most easily entered, as he judged rightly enough that before long he might be sent to the house on a far less peaceable mission. Nothing could exceed the rage of the baron when he heard the farmer's message. "'You cowardly villain,' he said to Ludovico. "'Did you allow the wretch to live who could send such a message to your master?' "'So please you,' said Ludovico. "'What could I do?' "'You could have struck him to the heart with your dagger, could you not?' said the baron. "'I have known you do such a thing to an old woman for half the provocation.' Had it been Biffy's wife instead, you might have shown more courage. Had I followed my own inclination, said Ludovico, I would have killed the fellow on the spot. But then I could not have brought away the young lady with me, for there were too many persons about the house and in the fields at the time. So I thought, before acting further, I had better let you hear his answer. One favor I hope your excellency will grant me. "'that if the fellow is to be punished, "'you will allow me to inflict it as a reward "'for the skill I showed in keeping my temper "'when I heard the message. "'Perhaps you have acted wisely, Ludovico,' "'said the Baron, after a few moments' silence. "'At present, my mind is too much ruffled "'by the villain's impertinence "'to think calmly on the subject. "'Tomorrow, we will speak of it again.' "'Next day, the Baron sent for his lieutenant "'and said to him, "'Ludovico,' I have now a commission for you to execute, which I think will be exactly to your taste. Take with you six men, whom you can trust, and start this afternoon for Bormio. Sleep at some village on the road, but let not one word escape you as to your errand. Tomorrow morning leave the village, but separately, so that you may not be seen together, as it is better to avoid suspicion. Meet again near the farmer's house, and arrive there if possible before evening has set in. For in all probability you will have to make an attack upon the house, and you may thus become well acquainted with the locality before doing so. But keep yourselves concealed, otherwise you will spoil all. After you have done this, retire some distance and remain concealed till midnight, as then all the family will be in their first sleep, and you will experience less difficulty than if you began later. I particularly wish you to enter the house without using force. But if you cannot do so, break into it any way you consider best. Bring out the girl, and do her no harm. If any resistance is made by her father, kill him. But not unless you are compelled, as I do not wish to enrage his daughter against me. However, let nothing prevent you from securing her. Burn the house down, or anything you please, but bring her here. If you execute your mission promptly, and to my satisfaction... I promise you and those with you a most liberal reward. Now go and get ready to depart as speedily as you can. Ludovico promised to execute the Baron's mission to the letter and shortly afterwards left the castle accompanied by six of the greatest ruffians he could find among the men-at-arms. Although on the spur of the moment Biffy had sent so defiant a message to the Baron, he afterwards felt considerable uneasiness as to the manner in which it would be received. He did not repent having refused the proposal, but he knew that the baron was a man of the most cruel and vindictive disposition, and would at all probability seek some means to be avenged. The only defense he could adopt was to make the fastenings of his house as secure as possible, and to keep at least one of his labors about him, whom he could send as a messenger to Bormio for assistance, and to arouse the inhabitants in the immediate vicinity in case of his being attacked. Without any hesitation, all promised to aid Biffy in every way in their power, for he had acquired great renown among the inhabitants of the place for the courage he had shown in refusing so indignantly the baron's offer of marriage for his daughter. About midnight, on the day after Ludovico's departure from the castle, Biffy was aroused by someone knocking at the door of his house and demanding admission. It was Ludovico for after attempting in vain to enter the house secretly, he had concealed his men, determining to try the effect of treachery before using force. On the inquiry being made as to who the stranger was, he replied that he was a poor traveller who had lost his way, and begged that he might be allowed a night's lodging, as he was so weary he could not go a step further. "'I am sorry for you,' said Biffy, "'but I cannot allow you to enter this house before daylight.' As the night is fine and warm, you can easily sleep on the straw under the windows, and in the morning I will let you in and give you a good breakfast. Again and again did Ludovico plead to be admitted, but in vain he would not be moved from his resolution. At last, however, the Bravo's patient got exhausted, and suddenly changed his manner, he roared out in a threatening tone. If you don't let me in, you villain, I will burn your house over your head. I have here, as you may see, plenty of men to help me to put my threat into execution. He continued, pointing to the men who had now come up. So you'd better let me in at once. In a moment, Biffy comprehended the character of the person he had to deal with. So instead of returning any answer, he retired from the window and alarmed the inmates of the house. He also told the laborer whom he had engaged to sleep there to drop from a window at the back and run as fast as he could to arouse the inhabitants in the vicinity and tell them that his house was attacked by the baron and his men. He was to beg them to arm themselves and come to his aid as quickly as possible. And having done this, he was to go on to Bormio on the same errand. The poor fellow attempted to carry out his master's orders. But in dropping from the window, he fell with such force on the ground that he could only move with difficulty, and in trying to crawl away, he was observed by some of the baron's men, who immediately sat on him and killed him. Ludovico, finding that he could not enter the house either secretly or by threatenings, attempted to force open the door, but it was so firmly barricaded from within that he could not succeed while in the meantime Biffy and his family employed themselves in placing wooden faggots and heavy articles of furniture against it, thus making it stronger than ever. Ludovico, finding he could not gain an entrance by the door, told his men to look around in search of a ladder, so that they might get to the windows on the first floor, as those on the ground floor were all small, high up, and well barricaded, as was common in Italian houses of the time but in spite of all their efforts, no ladder could be found. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for 7.77 dollars per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support and bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.